Hey everybody, welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April, and as always, I'm looking for my good friend, Seth Robinson. Hey, Seth. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to a little Thanksgiving break coming up, yeah. as I'm sure you are as well. Yeah, we're going to get this episode out uh, on Friday after Thanksgiving, but we're recording it a little early because we don't want to work on Thursday or Friday. So yeah, it'll be a good break coming up. We got the outlook taken care of. That was our last episode. And uh, you and I were talking before saying it really feels like the year is winding down here. Yeah, I think it is. um, We've uh, only got a few weeks to go. So uh, looking forward to all the things that are coming up, and it's been a good year, so um, I'm I'm pretty happy with uh, how 2022 has gone. Um, and today we are very very fortunate. We've got our CEO Todd Thibodeau from CompTIA, who's going to be joining us, and uh, we've had Todd on before, and uh, it's been a while though, so we're really excited to have you again, Todd, and welcome you to the show. And we're here to chat about what we're thinking about for 2023. How you doing, Todd? Good. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, like Carolyn said, it's been a a good year, a pretty full year. There's been a lot going on, and I think as Carolyn were and I were looking at uh, the schedule for the end of the year, we thought that this one might make sense. You know, there's been so much in the news, really going back the past few years. You know, after the pandemic hit, everyone was kind of like, you know, what's next or how do we return to normal? And I, I think we've started to do that now. And I think that we wrote about this in the outlook that return to normal maybe isn't looking exactly like what people thought it would, especially with some of the events of this year, with inflation changing, interest rates changing. So I think we just kind of wanted to talk about, you know, where do businesses go from here? What are what are some of the key things that businesses should be thinking about as they move past the pandemic, past some of the disruption from mm-hmm. this year, and really try to build a strategy for the years to come? So I don't know what would be kind of the, the first thing on your mind, Todd, as you're thinking about businesses charting their direction for the future. Well, if you think about the potential onset of recession next year, that's probably front and center in a lot of people's minds, wondering what's going to happen with that. Is the Fed going to take additional action, another 75 basis points? You've seen conflicting stories from a few of the Fed governors recently, some of them being very hawkish, wanting to have more rate increases, and some of them saying, well, let's take a look, see the data, because we may have been through the worst of the inflation so far, a lot of that caused by supply chain issues, a lot of it caused by energy spikes, companies maybe taking advantage, getting the opportunity to increase prices when they were holding things back so much during the pandemic, but also prior. I mean, we were almost in deflationary mode prior to the pandemic in, in a lot of markets, and in, in particular in tech, where we've had a tradition of deflation over time, particularly for hard goods, maybe not as much for services. But I think that's probably front and center on people's minds, just a a big amount of uncertainty about what's going to happen. The housing market has started to take some some big hits, which always translates in to others. You know, companies dealing with trying to get employees back in the office seems like a minor thing when you see the potential for recession to hit next year. And if that's what it takes, the Fed's going to do it to bring inflation down because that's I mean, that's probably their primary mandate is to get inflation back down into that two percent range. So we have about five percentage points to go. So there's a lot of things that need to happen during that time. I don't think it'll be nearly as bad as what we saw in the, I mean, the last time we had something like this where we really had to rein things in was when Paul Volcker came into the Fed in the early 80s on the onset of the Reagan administration. Inflation was running crazy. Interest rates were in the teens at that point, and they just put the brakes on in a massive way, which caused a very, very deep and painful recession during that time. I don't think we'll see anything quite like that. We may skirt by with just a, a quarter or two, of 
negative negative growth during that time. The oddball, you know, the things that are happening with China. I tell you what, one of the best things Biden could do would be to relieve the sanctions and the tariffs on Chinese goods if he really wanted, is really serious about combating inflation. But the problem is the Treasury has started to earn substantial money from that, all on the backs of the American worker. All those tariffs are they're not paid by the Chinese, regardless of what Trump was saying at the time. Those are paid by U.S. consumers. So there are some additional steps that could be taken to relieve that and potentially limit the Fed's desire to increase rates more, causing a recession. But I think that's the thing which is most on people's minds. They're not thinking too long term. They're thinking what's going to happen if there's a recession. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, you mentioned one one thing about workers returning to the office, and I, I wanted to kind of zero in on what may um, have changed and what may be staying the same coming out of the pandemic in terms of the everyday working environment, workforce habits, workforce practices. Um, Beyond remote work, we can talk about that too, but are there things that you found that um, companies pivoted to or pivoted away from during the pandemic that are gonna become mainstays now um, and become business as usual versus things that we may have done in the temporary situation that are going to go away and things will go back to what we used to see in 2019, for instance. Hopefully one of the things that stays in place is recruiting nationwide. So this idea that you would only exhaust like your local talent pool, bringing in new people into your company. I think during the pandemic, people realized they had to look broader and it was okay because those people were working remote, even though they were challenged to bring those people on, to bring them into the culture, to ingrain them into the work that was being done there. They had to do it because there wasn't that access to the talent pool because those people were at home or they'd been laid off. It was harder to find them. It's one of the things we don't, I think there's been a little less discussion around during the pandemic when no one's answering their office phones and no one's really answering email. It was really hard to find people and get a hold of them. That's why everybody's been inundated with things in their LinkedIn inboxes where you started to see an increase of traffic to your cell phone as those numbers become more available. But I think about if you're in the B2B space and you're just trying to find customers and those customers aren't answering their office phone anymore and they're not responding to the flood of emails that they get, some of the ridiculous... Some, solicitations that we get every day in our email box. I, I responded to someone this morning. I, I said, do these actually work? <laughs> Sending things like this, please stop contacting me. But I think the the looking for the national, national talent pool, I hope that that's something that stays because that provides a lot more opportunity for the worker. Because if you're a worker who's living, say, in a rural area, your job opportunities are pretty exhausted pretty quick in some of these areas. But to be able to think that you could be part of a national hiring pool certainly makes a lot more opportunities available to you. I don't think one of the things that stuck was employers believing that their employees could be productive working remotely. And we've, as an organization, you know, we've been remote. We've had, we have lots of remote employees have always had that. We've had liberal telecommuting policies. So even people who live here in the Chicago area were working at home very, very effectively made, we made that transition very well. But a lot of companies still don't believe that their employees can be as productive or more productive working at home. So that's something which they think they had to stomach during the pandemic, but when the pandemic started to end, they don't believe that that sticks and they're trying to bring people back in and they're pushing back. Now, one of the big dynamics that's gonna be happening over the next 10 years is the labor pool is gonna be shrinking. So this generation that grew up, that was born during the period of the last financial crisis, 2008, 2009, they're gonna be coming into age over the next 10 years into the workforce. And that generation is small proportionally relative to previous generations. And with the birth rate that we've had in the U.S. and in other industrialized countries, the labor labor pool is actually going to get smaller and smaller proportionally relative to what we need over time. 
So they're going to have to be more flexible. So this idea that you're going to have this one size fits all, everybody has to come into the office even for a few days, people will come back in if they want. I mean, that's what we're allowing people to do, come in as needed into the office if they want. If they don't, they can work at home. That's fine. I think employers are going to have to come back to that flexibility if they want to attract workers in the future, A, because people want it as part of a lifestyle, but it's also going to be required because they're going to be searching for people as the available labor supply gets smaller. Even though we saw the world population number go to 8 billion just recently was announced, but the number of people who are working age in that is shrinking as a proportion of that total. So we're, we're going to either have to adopt some additional robotic process automation in companies, we're going to have to adopt some other things, some AI technologies that are there, or you're just going to have to be a little more creative about how you find people and give them that flexibility because they've come to expect it in their work. Do you think, Todd, when you say that a lot of companies have kind of returned to the belief that their employees are more productive in the office, how much of that do you think is related to not wanting to learn the management style of managing remote employees and, and picking up those new tricks? Because like you said, we've been proactive about it for a while. And I think we've been through a learning curve of how do you manage remote employees? How do you keep an eye on the work that's getting done as opposed to being able to just see somebody in the office? But I've kind of understood that that is one of the main factors that's leading a lot of companies to you know want to bring everyone back in is they maybe just don't really know how to manage if they're not seeing everyone. Right. I think companies, as I said, just tolerated it during the pandemic because that's the only choice they had. If they wanted to keep operating, they wanted to keep people productive and on the payroll, they had to do it. But there was always that belief in the back of their mind that as soon as this is over, we're going to bring people back in. So I don't think there was ever any comprehensive training done across a broad swath of companies to say, look, we're going to deal with a new normal for this. People did prove that they could be productive. Productivity is actually falling. If you've seen the, the latest numbers on that, that's very, very troubling as it relates to inflation because in productivity is one of the things that keeps inflation in check. So they're pointing to that maybe as proof that, that this isn't happening, but I'm not sure that that's the same cause and effect that we see there. But I think people just stomached it for a while, knowing that they wouldn't have to deal with it. And companies that embraced it and learn how to manage through that change are going to be successful under any kind of environment, whereas others are going to be only successful in one kind of environment. And if you have a lot of old school managers in these companies who feel like they need to be riding roughshod over their team, being looking over their backs, keeping track of what they're doing over time, if, you're, if that's how you're going to operate in the future, you're going to have a hard time attracting generations of, of people because the companies that, who provide that flexibility are going to be able to get the best people and the companies who never learned those lessons won't. But I don't think anybody did a really good job of of training because they always thought it would return to the way it was. Everybody wants things to return to the mean. Mm -hmm. People want homeostasis. And to them, that was a temporary blip. And then we're going to return to this model. You see it with companies who are justifying bringing people back into the office because, well, we're paying rent. Well, at this point, that's a sunk cost. You've signed the lease. You're going to pay the cost regardless of what happens. So the justification to have people operating in the space, which is actually more expensive because you have all these support costs that are related to having people in the office, the cleaning, the food, whatever you're providing for employees in the workspace, that adds additional expense. But I think people just don't feel like they can get what they need out of people. They can't monitor them effectively. We are like, you know, we operate like, who cares? I mean, get your work done. It's if you want to work a few hours in the morning, take the middle of the day off and then work on your stuff. As long as you get your work done, it shouldn't matter. But that's not the same in, in a lot of companies. And those companies that have that really rigid policy 
The only one who's been really upfront on this is the CEO of Microsoft, who has said, look, we recognize people are more productive when they're working at home and in other environments. But he's been one of the few. Most, most companies have not said that. Hmm. Yeah, there seems to be a big control factor here. Um, and it, it baffles me as somebody who has worked remotely for far before the pandemic for most of my career. I mean, getting people just off the roads for an hour every morning in their commutes and an hour home to me seems like um, that's a positive right there that we should all be embracing. I wanted to pivot, Todd, for a sec to talk a little bit about innovation in this environment and thinking about the year ahead. We've talked a lot about all of the sort of the, the, the negatives, uh, the you know inflation and supply chain and other issues and what's gonna happen with interest rates. Um, given that environment and the fact that we have uncertainty around it and we don't know where it's gonna go, if you're a business owner today or you're somebody who's you know working in any environment where innovation is really important and we know in the tech industry, obviously it is, you know, um, should you still be doubling down on those things, thinking about what the next great thing your company's gonna do is, can you know, continue to invest? And where do you think some of that innovation is gonna be coming from? It's a great question. And there was a story that came out this morning talking about innovation the Alexa unit within Amazon is looking like they're going to lose $10 billion this year. Wow. So this idea that you have this innovation for innovation's sake, and they bet the, the farm on the fact that people would use these devices to purchase incremental things, things they wouldn't have bought otherwise. And none of that has come to be. So that's why they're losing all this money. I think they thought they would sign up companies that would build skills on top of the Echo, the Alexa platform. So Pizza Hut, hey, order a pizza. But that person probably would have bought that pizza otherwise, just because they were able to buy it. The dash buttons that they deployed for laundry detergent and other kind of supplies in the house, people would have bought those anyway. They were counting on all these incremental purchases that were going to justify the investment because they sold most of these devices pretty close to cost. Or Apple, when they were selling HomePod, the story that I read this morning noted this, that Apple sold those much closer. They were making a margin on those. But Google is having trouble with Google Play. They're not getting the return on that that they expected. But to see losses of $10 billion across the profits that their cloud business is making. So basically, the cloud, cloud business is underwriting all the losses in the rest <laughs> of Amazon. So I think that's a, it's a cautionary tale for being realistic about the, what these innovations can return. So if you're thinking about innovating into new established fields, I mean, that, there's, there's two pieces to that. You have somebody who's not in a field, say, an advanced field of cyber analytics that they could be doing for their customers. There's a clearly established business model for that, but that's an innovation for that company to be able to move into that space. But when you're innovating at the edges, at the forefront, you have to be really a lot more realistic about what the expectations are going to be for some of these things. And I mean, so many of these companies you see, I mean, Uber has been operating forever, tons of rides, billions of dollars in revenue. They're not remotely close to making any real profit yet. The same is true of Lyft. The same is true of a lot of these unicorn companies from the past. And you're starting to see this with the tech stocks, you know, taking a real beating where their people are starting to really pay attention to actual profit again, not just revenue growth in some of these things. But I think if, if you're in a space where you can you can innovate within your product mix for your customers and bring new automations, bringing new capabilities to to them. Yeah, go for that. Go for those established innovations that you can do. But if you're going to really be at the forefront, you have to just be a lot more realistic about it. I think if I had been in the room or if maybe either of you had been in the room, too, you would have been really questioning that idea that this whole 
model was going to be built on getting people to buy a whole bunch of stuff that they weren't already buying just because they could ask the device to buy that for them. That certainly didn't materialize. And I'm not sure why they had expectations that it would. But so much innovation is built on that model that you're just taking this wild guess and hope that people are going to do things, whereas thinking about ways that people might actually do things or bringing innovations which create a whole new paradigm. I mean, those are tougher. Those are fewer and far between. But I think for the industry, there's so many companies that are not doing and using some of the tools and bringing things to their customers that are already well established so they can innovate in that way without having to feel like they're having to create the new bleeding edge. Yeah, you actually covered a lot of things there that were on our on my mind for this discussion, which is kind of this, this point that tech is at right now, along with the point that the economy is at. So we've had, you know, these low interest rates for a long time. A lot of people have been talking about this. You know, this isn't, you know, my original analysis or anything, but the low interest rates kind of led to a lot of these bets that you're talking about with companies saying, we're just going to get to scale and then somehow the money happens, right? And it was it was pretty disconnected from any traditional, you know, product roadmap or, uh, you know, financial backing type of thing where, where you could understand unit economics. And it just, it seemed like the money was out there. And I, th I think that really came to a head with crypto where, you know, so many of us looked at it and it's like, where exactly is the money? Like, what is this based on? Um, and a lot of those things have started falling apart. And like with something like crypto, there could be an underlying technology there that eventually leads to another wave of innovation. But I, I think your point about, you know, making these bets and, and getting a little disconnected from some kind of basic economic principles is, is maybe what's causing a lot of tapping the brakes right now. Sure. And, you know, we see that in the tech sector. I think we see that in the economy. And it's just going to be really interesting to see how that plays out moving forward now that it feels like, you know, the, the decade of or however long it was of, of kind of free money is, is over. Companies were borrowing money at 2% rates and just sitting on it <laughs> because they could take that money, invest it in other assets and earn more than that. So the money was actually paying them back to just sit on money. I know Apple did that and other big companies did that too. They were issuing bonds. They were taking out loans to just sit on cash that they knew they could earn better rates of return. So they weren't actually losing any money just to sit on something, even though they were having to pay the, the payments and the interest on that debt, typically only the interest on those kinds of things. So that was happening for sure. Look at the excess hiring. So most of these people that got laid off at Facebook were people who got hired during a ridiculous hiring wave that they had where they increased hiring by almost 90% during that period, bringing all these people in to the metaverse, which was an, not a sure thing by any remote. We, we did that experiment internally with staff and they tried it for a while. And based on the headsets that were available at the time, they said it was cool, but it, they couldn't do it for more than about 15 minutes mm -hmm. because it was just too heavy to be able to have that thing on. People had instances of vertigo. They had all kinds of motion issues, but the weight of having to carry that thing on your face and your neck during time just made it, made it difficult. So he was trying to force a market which didn't exist. He wanted to be at the bleeding, bleeding edge of that. But I think the challenge with some of those, those platforms is a lot of times they only work if you can get a whole bunch of people to stop doing something that they're already doing and adopt something new, which when if there's not this big demonstrable advantage to doing that, people aren't going to do it. That's why it's really hard to, to create another social platform. So as Be Real has come along after TikTok, you got people to move. I think those are more fluid because there's, there's nothing real lost. And if you get enough of your friends moving across the platforms, then it makes sense. And if the content comes into it like it has with TikTok, 
but to create a whole new paradigm for how you're going to shop, how you're going to work, how you're going to interact. That is a very, very tall order. And so it's no surprise that they've had to take a real step back on that because A, the technologies just didn't advance, I don't think. They didn't get the companies, didn't embrace it as much. You got to give them a, a tiny bit of credit for imagining it and, and putting it out there, but it certainly wasn't the best thing for the shareholders. And I guess they just believed that he was infallible and that this was the way to go, but certainly a lot of hype around that. And as it relates to crypto, if the governments around the world decided tomorrow they wanted to regulate this, it would actually be a boon for crypto. It would move from being a speculative asset and could then move to maybe being more of a transaction platform where you could see some things. The banks could have always obliterated the crypto market just by making wire transfers faster and cheaper. Because that's really the first reason why crypto emerged and Bitcoin emerged is because it just was too expensive to transfer money. It's not like it's super expensive. I mean, you pay $25 for wires or $30 for same day wires for, for money, but it's the speed. It takes a long time for these things to clear. And then there's assets frozen, the double spending problem that they had. The banks could have dealt with that. So there's lots of things which could still obliterate the crypto market completely if interested parties come along. And these exchanges, Binance and Coinbase could be obliterated tomorrow by Fidelity. Just announced recently that they're going to provide commission-free trading on crypto. So people being able to move to a platform that they feel better about than they certainly did about FTX then they might feel about Coinbase or Binance across the world. I've seen the CEO of Binance. He's really been piling on. I've seen him in a lot of interviews recently and talking about how much better he is at managing all of this. But it's still the same smoke and mirrors thing. It's still people aren't finding these use cases for this really in any meaningful way, especially in an economy like ours where we have so many other payment methods. I mean, how much better is it to use Bitcoin than just to use your debit card? which right. instantly the transaction fees are zero to you. Maybe they cost something to the retailer that does them, but the, the fees are small. They build them into the price. I think we're, we're having a hard time finding real use cases that make sense here in the U.S. Now, in other economies where their currencies fluctuate a lot, where they want to really have a standard of value, but it hasn't proven to be that kind of, you know, I think El Salvador is probably thinking twice about all the Bitcoin they bought to try to convert their economy. And they're doubling down buying more while it's cheap, but they've certainly taken a bath on that. And nobody's embraced it. It hasn't been adopted. Dollars are still flowing in El Salvador as the primary means of payment. Yeah. It's, wow. Um, I think we've covered quite a bit here. We haven't talked about Twitter, but maybe we'll save that for another time. <laughs> um, unless you're dying to talk about it, Todd. But well, I thought we, um, if you- I, I will mention a few- great if you'd like it. to put in, yeah. The-, the, the he paid a ridiculous price. Okay. Right? Yes. <laughs> Twitter doesn't make any money. Right. This idea that he was buying this asset. I mean, I priced it out. We, I did a pricing model on it. It's not remotely worth that much money. Either was LinkedIn when Microsoft yeah. bought it for $30 billion. He just, he talked himself into buying it. And I'm glad that he actually had to, to do the purchase because he, he realized the minute he, he committed to it, he didn't want to buy it at that price. And his yeah. the Tesla stock is 55% off its 52-week high as of yesterday. So I think he felt pretty flush when he made those comments. But now that the stock isn't there, he's, he's really going to take a bath on this because that he won't get remotely anything like the return that he needed to justify that price. It was a ridiculous price to pay for that asset, which is worth almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I think he figured that out pretty quickly, but too late. Um, <laughs> 
So Seth and I wanted to ask you before we let you go, um, and it's off off of the topics we've been talking about. But what have you been watching on streaming lately? What's the best new show? We all we've we've been I've been binge watching a whole bunch of things, but we're interested to hear what you have to what you've been watching in your spare time. Yeah, so I've been getting into anime and watching some of that, and I watched uh, Attack on Titan, which I really enjoyed. That was one of the first. I've been I watched Food Wars, Hunter Hunter. It's amazing these, these programs have Titan, Titan especially, the themes, the political themes, the family dynamic themes, all this loyalty. There's so many different themes that, that play into these pieces. So everybody thinks these are just kids programming, but these are shown in prime time for adults in, in mm. Japan. Mm -hmm. We think of them as, these, as kids programming, but I've learned to appreciate the storylines that they can do in anime or ones you could never do in live action. And if you had to do it in live action with a lot of CGI, it would cost a fortune. So they're ones that can really only be told in kind of in an animated, with the animated model for some of these things. But I've really enjoyed that. I'm still waiting for the third season of Ted Lasso. I think I, think I could teach a master class in the first two seasons of the show, because I think <laughs> I've seen every episode about 20 times. Wow. I can do all the dialogue from the episodes. I know, you know, all the inside outs. I watch it with the captions on because there's a whole bunch of comments that you don't pick up because they kind of talking under their breath or in the background that you pick up when you turn on the captions when you watch that. So I encourage anybody who's who's watched Ted Lasso, the episodes a few times, to watch it with captions on and you'll pick up a, a little bit of extra stuff. But there's there's some there's some decent content out there. I, I just I'm I. I miss the movies. I used to, I'd love to go to the movies and the movie industry has just been decimated. They just, mm -hmm. the number of good titles that have been out there to see in the theaters. We had Maverick, Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. That was a great movie. I thought we're going to have the, I'm going to go see the Wakanda movie over the Thanksgiving break and see how that ends up being. But I haven't seen too many good movies. I've actually gone to see more movies that, that came out years ago where they brought them back into the theaters for the anniversaries like E.T., I saw Jaws, which was great to see again on a big screen. But I, I wish we would see a return to the movies being what they were pre-pandemic. That's a big loss for me because I, I would go to the movies at least once or twice a week to go see stuff that came out. But there's a lot of good, good TV out there. There's some good shows on Apple Plus. I think people who haven't kind of slept on Apple Plus as a platform are missing out on some, on some pretty good shows. There's, there's one, Shantaram, that I'm watching now which has uh, Charlie Hunnam from, who was in Sons of Anarchy, but people know him best as that. For those of you that were sons of, fans of that show, I have a Jack's bobblehead on my desk <laughs> on that. So I think there's, there's some good shows there. Check, check out that if you're not a fan, if you haven't subscribed to that. I think they increased their prices recently, but it's still a pretty good bargain. But also it's the NBA season, so I'm watching tons of basketball, usually buy the NBA package to watch games. So there's plenty, plenty to watch. Yeah, yeah. I my, my Celtics lost to the Bulls last night, but uh, we still have a pretty good team again this year here in Boston area. <laughs> I was about yeah. to say, that was the other thing we were talking about beforehand was your, your Celtics losing last yes. night. Yeah, right. well, they had won nine in a row. I said they, they were a little tired last night. <laughs> so. Yeah, they've been the best team in the league so far, I think. They and Milwaukee yeah. have been consistently the, the best team. So we, yeah. I play a game with one of our staff, Marcus Rogers. He and I pick win totals for all the teams at the beginning of the year. And then we, we follow them throughout the season. And we've been playing, this is our 10th year of playing. Marcus has never beaten me. So I'm not sure it's still a competition at this point <laughs> because he, he hasn't won. He did one, he did win one playoff season, but 
out of all the ones that we've played, but we, we really enjoy it. We keep track of the wins and losses, keep it updated every week or so so that we can keep track of it, but I'm beating him again. So I'm, I, I kind of hope he wins sometime, but kind of not because I still want to keep beating him, but it's, it's fun. I love the NBA. It's just a great, we got the world cup going on right now, but it's, I find it hard to watch the world cup games and not think about all the people that died building these ridiculous stadiums in a country that will probably all be torn down when the world cup is done. So it's, uh, it takes a little bit of the enjoyment out of watching the World Cup. Yeah, yeah I'm with you on that one, too. So it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, a little bit controversial there, but yeah. we have our NBA. So yep. we yeah. every night. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully that uh, gives people some food for thought heading into the new year and gives them something to watch over the Thanksgiving weekend. So, Todd, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. We'll have to have you back again pretty soon. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Thanks, Todd. All right. right. Thanks as always to uh, our producer, Andrew McMillan and Carolyn. I'll see you next time for our last episode of the year. Yes. Coming up. I'll see you soon. Todd. Uh, Todd and Seth. Thanks.